Well, if you have your Bibles with you, how about follow me over to the book of Romans? Be in Romans chapter 6 today. Again. Romans chapter 6, we're going to pick up in verses 15 through 23 is our text today. Romans 6, beginning in verse 15. And the Bible says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one who you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this day and this opportunity we have to be in your house. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we are granted as American citizens to freely worship you. We thank you, Father, that you, in your sovereign grace, have made yourself known to us, in particularly through your Son, Jesus Christ, and that in Christ we have gained access to your presence. We have been reconciled to you. We have been set free from the bondage of sin, and we have been made alive unto righteousness. And I pray, Father God, that you will help us as we study this text this morning to understand what it is that you've done in us and how it is that we ought to live in light of that. And as always, Lord, Use this vessel to bring glory and honor to your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, last time we were together, Paul began to help us deal with some obvious objections that come up in light of this teaching of faith alone by grace alone. And if you remember, Paul has this imagined Debater who steps up in the in the podium beside him and issues these uh, arguments in light of what Paul's message is. And Paul, being the master teacher that he is, he deals with these arguments. He brings them up before we can even think about uh, asking the question 
are posing the objection. And that's really what Paul's doing in, in chapter 6 and chapter 7. He's dealing with three objections that his opponents would raise because of this teaching of grace. We saw the first objection in uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Again, it's posed in the form of a question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And you remember the the occasion for that is Paul tells us in chapter 5 that we are not under law but under grace and that where sin increased as the law came in, grace increased all the more. And so that led to this idea that Paul was saying, hey, you might as well just sin however you want to sin so God can have the maximal amount of glory by extending his grace in the maximum amount possible for those who are sinning. And of course, you remember Paul's answer to that was meganoita. May it never be. This is absurd what you are saying. Well, that leads to this second objection that we see in, in verse 15, again, posed in a question in Paul, uh, to Paul's teaching. And the occasion for that a question comes really quite, quite literally from verse 14. In verse 14, Paul says, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And that raises this question from the objector. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? And that's what we're going to unpack uh, today. Now, last week, we learned about the doctrine of sanctification. You remember, Paul was dealing with this idea of our sanctification. To put it another way, the, the old man has been buried and put to death in Christ, and we are a new creature made alive in Christ. And Paul Paul changes the analogy a little bit in this section of Scripture, but the reality is still the same. Last week, was we learned that sanctification is really manifest in three categories. The idea of sanctification first, what Paul primarily dealt with in our last section, was sanctification, the idea of positional sanctification. That is to say that God has declared us sanctified in Jesus Christ. It is something that happened when we came to faith in Christ, just like God declares us forensically justified, he declared us sanctified. Well, we know the reality of our anecdotal history, right? We know, we know our own lives, and we know that we don't always measure up to what God has declared us to be. Hence, the Bible helps us understand that while God has declared us to be sanctified, there's this already not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. So already we have been declared sanctified, but not yet have we fully realized that declaration in our personal lives in this time and space in which we live, right? So that leads to the idea of progressive sanctification, where the Bible says we are being sanctified by the work of God in our life through the person of the Holy Spirit and our coming into conformity to what God has called us to be and how God has called us to live. Then the third aspect of that sanctification has to do with uh, perfected or completed sanctification. And that will happen at the consummation of the age when Christ returns again. Not only will our inner man, which is already declared sanctified, uh, be sanctified, but our body, 
this, this mortal body that is still prone to sin will ultimately be sanctified as well. And we will be removed once and for all from the presence and the power of sin in our life. And so Paul dealt with that quite extensively, I think, in the, the first 14 verses of chapter 6. And today he's going to deal with a, a similar idea but drive home more this point that because we are sanctified in Christ, because the old man is dead, then we ought to live. It ought to have a practical application in our life. We ought to live in obedience to God who is our master. So today, Paul tells us, in essence, everybody is a slave. Every human being that is ever born is a slave, at least in the spiritual sense. That we are either a slave to sin or we're a slave to righteousness or a slave to God. Those are the only two categories. There's nothing in between. You are either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. And the sermon in a nutshell is, if you're a slave to sin, you obey sin. That's all you can do. And it leads to shame and death and punishment. If you're a slave to God, then you are obedient to God, and that leads ultimately to eternal life and sanctification and eternal life, rather. So that's kind of where we're going with this text today. Paul's going to unpack that for us, and I've got five headings that we'll look at, some longer than others. But uh, first, we'll look at the argument stated and answered, kind of like we did before, because Paul states the objection, he answers the objection, and then he gives his theological foundation for his answer. So we'll look at the argument stated and answered in verse 15. We'll look at the answer substantiated in verse 16. Then we're going to look at this issue of the abolition of slavery to sin for the saint in verses 17 and 18. Then he's going to restate this analogy in a simpler way in verse 19. And then we're going to have the final analysis, the summation of it all in uh, verse 20 through 23. So that's kind of how we're going about it today. So the first is the argument that has been stated and answered. And again, we see this in verse 15. If you have your Bibles open there, you see Paul makes this objection in the form of a question. Uh, The occasion again is verse 14 that says you're no longer under law, but under grace. So Paul's in particular, his Jewish objector would raise this question saying, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And so the idea and the implication is, hey, if grace is to be given and it glorifies God, who is to say that we ought not just to continue on in our sinfulness? And we'll see in a moment how Paul answers that. Now, the first thing I think we need to deal with is the issue of sin in this passage in verse 15 as it relates to verse 1. Because there are those who make a distinction between the concept of sin in verse 1 and the sin in verse 2. There are those who say that in verse 1, this sin has to do more with the dominion of sin, which I think we laid that argument out last week, that verse 1 clearly has to do with not necessarily individual sins, 
that, that's an aspect of it. But the, the pertinent point that Paul was making is sin has a dominion. It's like sin is a king over your life. It is reigning over your life before you come to faith in Christ Jesus. And so when, when the objector says, shall we continue in sin, it's not necessarily individual sins that he's talking about. It's a lifestyle of domination by sin, which results in individual sinfulness in our life, if that makes any sense. Because Paul's playing off of this idea of federal headship. You remember, we're either in Adam or we're in Christ. If we are in Adam, then sin and death reign over our lives. And that's the idea in verse 1. And then those who make a distinction look at verse 15 and say, hey, this is talking about individual sinful acts in your life. And some translations even translate this passage similarly to chapter uh, 6, verse 1, wherein they say, shall we continue to sin? Whereas the ESV and I think majority of, of or a lot of other translations translate it, shall we sin, right? Period, point blank. And, but some people look at this distinction mainly because of the verb tenses. And they make this distinction there. And they say that chapter 15, or chapter 6, verse 15, rather, has to do with individual acts of sinfulness. Now, again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. All of this results in individual acts of sinfulness. But I want to make the argument this morning that really the objector is talking about the same idea, this dominion of sin or this lifestyle of sin uh, that dominates a person's life. And we can do that, again, I think, by looking at the verb tense, okay? Because in, in the first Verse, it is in the present active subjunctive. Now, I know that means nothing to you, but or most of you, some of you, it may mean a lot to. But the idea of the present is this kind of concept of ongoing aspect of the results of this particular action. In other words, the results of this domination of sin in our life is a continuous thing, is the idea behind uh, the verb tense in verse 1. And in the active voice, we are the ones doing the action. Whereas when you get to verse 15, it is in the aorist active subjunctive. Now, just for your trivial information, the subjunctive is the mood of possibility. It may or may not. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's going to happen. It may or may not, okay, in that sense. Whereas in the aorist tense, it is a really simple past tense. So the idea is that this is an event that took place simply at a point in time. At some point in time, you and I were under the domination of sin in our life. Okay, now it, in the aorist, necessarily it doesn't have the idea of whether the action continued or is sustained, but it can have that idea. So again, I think just because of the aorist tense verb in this passage that it has to do with the action as a whole. Okay, not the beginning or the ending of it, that this is just the action as a whole. So it carries with it this idea, again, of what we talked about in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. This dominating 
reign of sin in our life, this control that sin has over us. Now that I've bored you with all of that, uh, let's move on to what Paul says about this, this idea. The first, but before we get to the answer, we've got to make some clarifications about this issue of, of not being under the law. Because the statement is, shall we continue to sin because we're not under law, but under grace. And so I looked at this idea as there's a truth to it and there's a falsehood to it. Okay. The truth of the issue that we are not under the law is that we're no longer under the curse of the law. We, we're no longer under the system that says that righteous acts of, you know, that you're required to, to live according to these righteous acts to find favor with God. We're not bound to the law in that sense anymore. We're not bound to the guilt that was on our heads because of the law anymore. We already know from Paul that there is no one who could do enough righteous acts to make themselves right with God. Because if we do one righteous act, we're going to fail in another area of our life. And not to mention, the prophet Isaiah tells us that our righteousness is as filthy rags. So the best that we can do is filth in the eyes of God. We have in us no inherent ability to do what is right apart from the regenerative work of Christ in our life through the person of the Holy Spirit. So in that sense, I'm free from all of that, okay? I'm not under that anymore. But here's where people take it to the extreme because we love to take we love to throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to doctrines like this. Because we're going to find out later that Paul says, hey, the law's not sinful, right? And here's the reality of it. While we're not under the law in that aspect that we have just talked about, we as believers, quite clearly, Paul is making the case in the first part of chapter 6 and in this last part that we're in, Paul is making the case that if we claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we need to understand that we have been set free, yes, from the bondage of sin and from the bondage of, that the law brought and the guilt that the law brought, but we have been transformed into a slave of obedience to God. Well, how do we know what it looks like to be in obedience to God? Well, God gave us what it looks like to be righteous people, didn't he? And how did he do that? In the moral code that we call the Ten Commandments. God demonstrated for us his character of righteousness in the moral code. And in light of who he is, it transforms how we treat one another. And Jesus really summed all of that up for us, didn't he? You know, in our society today, we love to use the phrase, uh, you know, hey, we're not all about that law stuff, that legalism stuff. We just love God and love people, right? And we say amen. But where do we get that phrase? Love God and love people. Well, we get it from Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? And the, he said, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your hearts, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. And what did Jesus do in those two verses? He just summed up the moral code. He just summed up the Ten Commandments. And he verifies that because he says, on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, everything that God has been telling us in the Old Testament hinge on those two commandments. And that's why Paul can write in a later place that the way we fulfill the law is through love. 
love God rightly and love one another rightly. And that's what Paul is trying to help us understand in these texts. That we've been set free from this bondage we were in to law and sinfulness. And we have been made a slave of obedience to God in Christ Jesus. And so it, 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 it demolishes this idea of antinomianism that we see rampant in a lot of Christian circles today. Because you and I are still bound by God to live in accordance to his holiness as believers. And that's really what Paul's driving home today. Let me just give you a cross-reference that verifies that. Paul, in Romans 8, we'll get there in a few weeks. Romans 8, verse 3 and 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And what was that? Bring us to righteousness. Because what did the law do? When the law came in, it exposed our sinfulness. But what did it also do? It tantalized our flesh to more sinfulness. So we could never do what the law required of us. But God has done that. And how did he do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And that doesn't mean Jesus was a sinner. It just means Jesus came in human form, right? Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. He came in human form and he did as a real man what you and I could not do as human beings, right? He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. He accomplished every aspect that the law demanded, which was perfection. And God did that by sending his son. But he also did something else by sending his son. Look, he condemned sin in the flesh. How did he ultimately do that? By putting his son on the cross and putting the weight of the sinfulness of humanity on the shoulders of the son and crushing him under his wrath to pay the debt owed because of sin. So God did what the law could not do by sending his son. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that, and listen to this phrase. If you're in Romans chapter 8 and in, in verses 3 and 4, underline this phrase. Because it really tells us what Paul is ultimately saying in chapter 6. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So, you and I need to understand, while we're not under the guilt and the burden of the law anymore, we are still held to the moral standard of living that the law requires because it, it is binding on all of humanity. And the only way we can do that is because Christ has killed the old man. He's buried the old man and he's raised us to walk in newness of life. He's made us to be no longer slaves of sin, but slaves of God to obedience to righteousness. And look, he bears that out in the rest of that phrase. This is those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's the only way we can do it. Christ in us, right? The hope of glory. And so Paul, because of all of this, answers their question, as we've already noted, meganoita, may it never be. God forbid 
You know, you could almost say this is the most absurd thing I have ever heard anyone say. Paul has a resounding no. We should not sin because we're no longer under, under law but under grace. Now, we know the reality. We still do sin. But there ought to be a distinction in our life prior to Christ when our nature was bent towards sinfulness and our life after Christ where our nature is toward God and holiness. And when we fail, it grieves us and it drives us to our knees to ask God to help us not to do that anymore. Before, we loved our sin. It was no big deal. Now, in Christ, we ought to hate every aspect of sinfulness in our life and ask God to help in removing that through this work of progressive sanctification in our life. That leads us, point number, leads us to point number two, this answer substantiated. And here's where Paul begins to use this analogy of slave. As a matter of fact, if, if you have your Bibles, you, can, you, you don't have to do it right now, but just go back and read this section and just circle. You know, one of the things that I always do when I read a passage of Scripture is look for recurring words or recurring phrases because that kind of tells you what one of the main thoughts or ideas are in this passage. The word slave, the, word, uh, the Greek word doulos, is used eight times in these verses set before us today. So it's a very important idea that Paul is uh, sharing with us. Look at verse 16. He says, do you not know? Now, again, Paul is making this point in this passage. Obviously, you know this. this these are the fundament, fundamental elements of Christianity. If you're a Christian, this is ground level stuff. Obviously, you know this. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? So the analogy is slavery. Now, you and I, we, I I'm pretty sure not one of us is probably uh, seen a slave unless we've traveled maybe to a third world country somewhere, right? I don't. I, there's no slaves living around me that I know about. Okay, in, in in my community anyway. Now, in the sense of physical, literal slavery. Now, we don't like that word today just because of all the negative connotations that come with it, and rightly so, right? But in first century Rome, slavery was a commodity. There were a lot of them around. And so to use this analogy would make sense to this first century because they would see slaves everywhere they went, every day. They understood what slavery was. And so Paul is using this to drive home a point. The point is, as we started off this morning, every one of us are slaves. And the job description of a slave is what? Obedience, right? A slave, there's no debate, there's no question. The job description of a slave is to obey. And that's what Paul is saying. How do you know which slave you are? The one whom you obey. 
So you are either a slave to sin and you are obeying your master by living a life of sinfulness in rejection to God and rebellion to God, or you are a slave to righteousness or a slave in this verse to obedience, which ultimately Paul says in a later verse in this passage, slave to God, which I think is the umbrella phrase for everything he's talking about. So you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. If you're a slave to sin, you obey sin. If you're a slave to God, you obey God. Now, we don't like that concept in America, right? Because you ain't going to tell me what to do, right? I'm going to do what I want to do. I got rights, right? Now, we do have rights as American citizens based on our Constitution, right? But even those rights are limited to some degree as it relates to other folks. But you and I have got to understand when it comes to our spiritual identity, we either are, we either are, A-R-E, a slave to sin or, O-R, we are a slave to God. You're in one of those two camps. I don't know the answer to that question for you. I might be able to look at what little bit of your life that I know about and make an educated assumption. But you know, you know who it is you obey, just like I know who it is that I obey. And I guarantee you, God knows. It's like the Bible says in another place, you are either for me or you are against me. There is no middle ground. Right? There is no middle ground. Now again, this is not, Paul is not teaching us sinless perfection. Okay? Because in chapter 7, we're going to see this battle that Paul talks about. And you and I live out that battle every single day. And we'll talk more about what that means and, and, and how it looks in our lives to the best of our ability. But you and I need to understand that Paul is making it very clear. There is no biblical, doctrinal, theological concept that a person can come to Christ and continue to live dominated by sin. Now, will a Christian mess up every now and then? Fall into sin? Struggle with sin? Yes, because we drag this flesh with us. But God is calling us because he's working out sanctification in our life. And there's more than one place in the scripture that God calls us, for lack of a better way to put it, to join him to come under his authority in this sanctifying work in our lives. And again, not to quote, quote Romans 12 too often, but don't be conformed to this world but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. How does our mind get renewed? Remember, the mind is an aspect of the inner man. Mind, will, emotions. When the New Testament uses the word heart, that's really what it's talking about, the inner man. Mind, will, and emotion. How does that get transformed? One, through the regenerative work of Christ. 
But how does that relate to this practical aspect of progressive sanctification? It's you and I getting in God's word, understanding who God is, right? And that word begins to be implanted into our lives and it begins to make a mark on us and change us. That leads us to this next section in our text today, verses 17 through 18. And I just labeled it the abolition of slavery to sin. I had to clarify that, right? Because it's not an abolition to slavery for the saint. It's just an abolition of slavery to sin for the saint. Why? Because we have been made a slave to God in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul writes in another place. Sometimes I just throw Paul out there because he wrote most of the letters in the New Testament, right? So I don't, I'm not, I can't remember if he actually said this or not, but uh, I'm banking on he did, but you can, you can find and correct me. <laughs> the Bible tells us that we are not our own, that we are bought with a price, right? And so uh, while, we, while we have been uh, relieved from this slavery of sin, we're not relieved from slavery altogether because we've become a slave to God. But look at verse 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you were, who were, don't, don't miss that, underline that phrase, okay? You who once, who were once slaves. What's the implication of that statement? That if you are a Christian, you are no longer that. You once were slaves to sin, but when you're a Christian, you are no longer slaves to sin. Why? Because he says you have, the implication is you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So what does Paul say? This is how you were, but now in Christ, this is how you are. And the implication is live in light of how you are, because this is what God has declared about you. The reality, every one of us were slaves to sin. There is no exception. Every human being born into this world, we were slaves to sin because we were in, born in Adam. We were in bondage to sin, the Bible tells us in another place. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, the Bible tells us in another place. And Paul reminds us here that leads to obedience to sin. We were totally under the dominion of sin. That's who we were before we came to Christ. But Paul makes it clear, that's not who you are now. Now in Christ, you have become obedient from that inner man to this standard of teaching which you were committed. We, we gotta unpack that phrase, okay? We may not make it to the end, but we got to at least, this might be our end, but we got to unpack that sentence in this text. You are obedient to that standard of teaching that really the idea behind the word is this sound doctrine. Well, what is this sound doctrine that Paul is proclaiming to us? 
It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, preached to Abraham in the Old Testament, and ultimately manifest in a very real, visible, physical way in the person of Jesus Christ. That God did, as Paul said in Romans chapter 8, what the law could not do by sending his son. That there is a righteousness of God that has been revealed apart from the law, but in faith in Christ Jesus alone. It is the gospel, this standard doctrine of truth that we find in God's word, that Jesus is the promised seed. He is the promised Messiah. He is the one who has appeased God's wrath for sin once and for all. There is no other sacrifice. He is it. That's why there is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. It's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That's what you've come into obedience to. And don't miss that idea of obedience. I've told you on more than one occasion, one occasion, the gospel is more than just a call. The gospel is a command, and that command demands obedience. And we see this phrase in, this, in, in Romans. It's a thread that runs through Romans. And it, it goes on into other places, but I want to give you four verses. We've already seen this in three places in Romans. And we see it again in the, in the book of Acts. But look at this idea of coming into obedience to the faith, the gospel of Christ. Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about this gospel in Romans, right? That's what he's been called to, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And this gospel brings them into obedience. Verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. And again, he's talking about this gospel ministry that God has called him to in the Gentiles. Chapter 16, verse 26. But has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of the faith. Hopefully you get the idea that the gospel is more than just a call to God. The gospel is a command to bow the knee to Christ. And those who obey the gospel find themselves redeemed in God. That's why John writes the way he writes in, in John chapter 3 and verse 36. You can go look that one up. Then he talks about this teaching, you know, this, this, this gospel teaches sound doctrine. But look, there's, a, there's another important word in, in this passage, this standard of teaching which you have been uh, committed to. It, it doesn't come across in the, the English as well as the Greek makes the picture of it. And this word that you don't necessarily see the idea of is tupon, tupon in the Greek, T-U-P-O-N, in, in, in the English transliteration. But I don't know if you guys have them, but I have seen and used, you know, sometimes they make these little brass dies that have on the bottom side a letter or a number, whatever, and you can take that and you can tap on leather or wood. And sometimes they have some you can tap on, you know, just regular uh, metal uh, and it imprints 
that number or that letter, right? That's the idea of this doctrine. This doctrine God has imprinted upon you. It has made a mark in your inner person. Okay, for you ladies, it may be maybe a a uh, one of them uh, festive cookie cutters. Right? If you take one of them festive cookie cutters and you put it in the dough and it makes the shape of that cookie cutter, that's what he's saying is it's making the impression of this doctrine on your heart. God has struck in you the truth of this word. And the Bible parallels this in other places that he writes this law on our hearts. This has marked you. Now tell me that if God has marked you with this truth that it doesn't impact your life on a daily basis. It has to impact your life because God has marked you with this. And not only that, God has committed you. Now, we've seen this word uh, committed before, parodidomai, in, in Romans. We've seen it three times in the negative in Romans. God doing some turning people over, but with a negative consequence. If you remember, remember in Romans chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 24, God turned them over to, Right? You know, debased minds. We see that three times. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Romans chapter 1, verse 26. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. God gave them over. He gave them over to that lifestyle of sinfulness. Well, the, the opposite has happened to you and to me. God has given us over. He has, he has set us apart. He has committed us to being obedient to this sound doctrine. That's what Paul's telling us in this passage. And again, don't miss, miss the, the verb tense. It is in the passive form. This is not something that you've done for yourself. This is what God has done for you. You know, if you remember your, your elementary school English grammar, this is the boy was hit by the ball, not the boy hit the ball. This is you and I, God working in us. He has so impacted us and marked us, he has committed us to this path. That's why Paul can say, you, sin will have no dominion over you because God is working in you to sanctify you. Now, we're going to have to wrap this up. So the last two points you're not going to get fully. Because Paul really summarizes this thing. When we get to verse 19, he really makes the point again. You're either slaves of sin or you're slaves of, of righteousness or slaves of, of God. Slave, slavery to sin led to shame and lawlessness and more lawlessness. It just is compounding. It's that proverbial slippery slope. Right? Slavery to God ultimately leads to sanctification and righteousness. And that's the context in which Paul writes the verse that we all know, we probably all memorized, unless you're Candace, because we had to pull her independent Baptist card because she never went through the she never went through the Romans road, right? Romans three twenty three, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord. You see, that verse is really a summation of everything that Paul has just said, isn't it? Now we we use it rightly by letting people know what salvation is about ultimately but there's so much more to what salvation is than we let on when we use when we just quote that verse in isolation right because that verse is packed with everything else we just read 
everything else we just went. Because when we share the gospel today, for the most part, we'll tell people, hey, the wages of sin is death. You don't want that, right? You want, you want God. You want Christ. Come to Christ and everything's okay. But we leave out everything that led to that verse in chapter 6 where Paul says, if you are a, a Christian or claim to be a follower of Christ, you're no longer slave to sin, but you're slave to righteousness. It'll impact how you live your life today. And we don't share that as part of the gospel today. But we ought to. Hey, I know it'll make a longer conversation. I get it. I get it. But isn't it worth it? Isn't it worth it to take a little bit more time? Because, see, and again, I'm rambling right now. I got to quit. Okay, Listen. We, we have so misconstrued the idea of discipleship in the church. We, we take the Great Commission and we try to separate all of that out into different activities, right? But what was Matthew saying? What was Jesus saying? Because he said it. Matthew just recorded it. When he talked about making disciples, it involved every aspect of what he mentioned in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. So when we're going to evangelize to someone, we need to help them understand the whole truth of the gospel. Else, we're going to have people who, when they stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, in Matthew again, when they stand there in the end, Jesus is going to have to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. And they're going to cry, well, hey, I, I, I was at church, Right? I gave to the friendship closet, right? I came, I came to Sunday school. But the reality is they did not ever really come to true saving faith in Jesus Christ. And part of the problem is we don't ever fully explain to them the fullness of the gospel. And shame on us for that. Why do you think Jesus said what he said in Matthew chapter 7? You know, at the end, when he talks about, you know, counting the cost when it comes to building a structure. That's not talking about just your business or just your finances in life. That's gospel stuff. Every bit of that is gospel stuff that Jesus is talking about. So, to wrap this up, to get us back to where we need to be, everybody's a slave. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. If you're a slave to sin, it leads to death and damnation. If you're a slave to God, it's only because God has bought you with a price, namely his son, Jesus Christ. And you are called by God to live in obedience to the righteous character that he demands. And we can do that. That's what Romans 8 said. We can do that because God is working in us to sanctify us. We just have to mortify this flesh, right? We have to reckon it as dead. It doesn't live. We got to talk like Paul. It's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. Every day. And we can overcome areas of sinfulness in our life. Is there still going to be a struggle? Yes, there is. But we can overcome 
in Christ Jesus. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for this time. I pray, Father, that you would help us as we endeavor to be faithful followers of you. Lord, for those of us who are believers today, I pray that you would show us every place in our life that does not live up to the standard of your holy character and help us to be more conformed to Jesus Christ every single day of our lives. Lord, for those who are lost in this place or those who are lost who will hear this, I pray, Father, through the person of the Holy Spirit, you will use this truth to show them clearly who they are apart from Christ and who it is they can be in Christ Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.